How are you doing there, everybody? Welcome, one and all saints and sinners, ladies and gentlemen, lesbians and gays, non-binaries, transsexuals, transgenders, and just trannies. Mix, spicks, queers, geeks and freaks, midgets, dwarves, hunchbacks, lepers, and of course, leprechauns. You're welcome to Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. The time is five o'clock exactly. Do drop in on me. Leave comments at richieallen.co.uk where it says comment live. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. Think I left out Paddy's. Welcome. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, the Irish journalist and author John Waters returns to the programme this afternoon for another long-form conversation. I'm really looking forward to chatting with John. I reached out to him this morning. That's a terrible cliche, isn't it? I reached out to him. I dropped him an email. That's even worse, is it? Is it? I emailed John and I said, You know what, John? The Irish government, as you probably know, is going to spend €3 billion on housing Ukrainian refugees there. Isn't that interesting? Shall we talk about that and the many issues around it? Not least, the Irish Justice Minister reassuring Irish people that they needn't worry about their property being seized to house Ukrainian refugees. It's quite crazy what's going on in God's country, John Waters will discuss that and much more with me throughout the programme. And if there's something you'd like me to put to John on your behalf, I've already told you how to do that. It's richieallen.co.uk and it is comment live. Lovely afternoon here in Salford. Yes, spring is really here. It's nice, nice to be with you, to be with you. Nice. And the website is holding up pretty well, isn't it there, eh? Eh? He says, tempting fate. Don't tempt fate, you big baldy bastard. Okay, I'm going to talk a little bit about the reaction to... It appears that Elon Musk is about to acquire Twitter. Twitter has agreed, the people who run Twitter, now it'll be voted upon by shareholders. And... I've been, well, a little perplexed at the enthusiasm greeting the announcement that Elon Musk of SpaceX and Tesla, Tesla really, isn't it? Tesla, yeah, and SpaceX, yeah, that uh, he's going to take over Twitter and that this is going to be some boon, some gift, some amazing day for free speech. I'm not entirely sure that's true. But uh, for the moment, I want to talk to you. Tough Falcherov, by the way, you're very welcome. I've already said that. Yeah. Uh, the fallout from Rainergate continues. Rainergate, or Angela Rainergate, or Basic Instinct Gate. Yes, Angela Rainer, the uh, deputy leader of the Labour Party, was accused at the weekend of rearranging her legs, crossing and uncrossing them to distract Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister. It has been called, the article has been called, and the claims have been called sexist, classist, misogynistic, hateful, demeaning, and offensive to everyone. And that was just the Guardian columnist Owen Jones. 
the little bollocks of a pipsqueak. That was just him. But when you've got your, uh, when you've got to tell your side of the story, when you want the truth to get out there, who do you turn to? Where do you go? Who do you call? Well, Angela Rayner turned uh, to Lorraine Kelly. What kind of fuckery is this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she went on Lorraine Kelly's ITV programme, which ordinarily does fashion and knitting and little fluffy puppies and kittens and that sort of thing. It comes on after Good Morning Britain, after Richard Madeley has bored the living bejesus out of you, then Lorraine Kelly comes on ITV. Yeah. So Angela went on and she wore a trouser suit and kept her legs together so as not to confuse the diminutive host. Diminutive. Lorraine is a little munchkin. We Scottish Lorraine Kelly. Um, yeah, Rainer went on to tell her the story. We rebutted it instantly and was like, this is disgusting, it's completely untrue. Please don't run a story like that. Because I was with my... I've got teenage sons and I was with my teenage sons and I, I, I felt really sad again that my weekend and I was trying to prepare my children for seeing things online that they don't want to see their mum portrayed that way. It was steeped in classism as well and about where I come from yes. and how I grew up. It and really was. The fact that it I, really was. The fact that I must be <laughs> thick and I must be stupid because I went to a comprehensive school mm. and then, they, you know, they talk about my background because I had a child when I was young, as if to say... Young? And promiscuous, you know, that was the insinuation. It was, which I, I mean, felt was quite offensive for, for people yeah. from my background. Yeah, they, they, they weren't being classist by mentioning she went to a comprehensive school, they weren't suggesting that she was thick because she went to a comprehensive school, it's because she was kept back 11 years in a row. She looks young for her age, Angela Rayner. She's actually pushing 74. Angela Rayner there, the uh, deputy leader of the Labour Party. Now, her boss, Keir Starmer, was in Stevenage. He spoke to her to console her after the article emerged. Angela, soon after the article was printed, and <laughs> she told me herself how disgusted she was by it. Um, and, you know, she's a formidable politician. A no, she's not. Brilliant politician. She's not a brilliant politician. There isn't any such thing. That's oxymoronic language. Brilliant politician. You can't put those two words in the same sentence. Politicians are goons, fools, misfits who didn't succeed at anything in the private sector and had to, uh, well, get into politics, really to find the fame and the fortune that they couldn't find when they actually had to work for a living. None of them. There's not a brain cell between them in Westminster, let alone Angela Rayner. Um, and this is just disgusting. Disgusting? Rank sexism, rank... Did he say wank or was it rank? I couldn't quite figure that out. I was hoping it was the, the former. Rank sexism, rank misogyny. <laughs> I think he said wank. Misogyny. Um, and it's not just Angela that faces this. Lots of women in politics too, and that's why... Who, though? Who faces misogyny in politics? Who? Who? Women are overrepresented in, in the... Say it for me. In the ministerial positions, both in the cabinet and in the shadow cabinet. Where's all the misogyny? Obviously, we need to call out anybody involved in this, but we need a culture change as well. <laughs> 
involved and calls the editor of the Mail on Sunday to come to a meeting. Yeah, the Sky News journalist or presenter or God knows what said, is it okay that the speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, should call in the editor of a national newspaper to, uh, well, to slap him on the wrist? for publishing the story. Well, look, the Speaker obviously uh, needs to be happy that uh, the way we all treat each other in Parliament is appropriate. And well, that's got nothing to do with the Mail on Sunday. Respect, and obviously he'll make his own decisions um, in that respect. But I think all of us have got a responsibility, not just to call this out, to, to renew our determination um, <laughs> to change the culture in Parliament, because, um, you know, this is awful for Angela. She's described the impact that she worries it will have on her own children. Um, I've got a young girl. I don't know how her children will ever, ever learn to cope with the fact that their mother was compared to Sharon Stone in a national newspaper. I mean, their mother, who's been in and out of the headlines for the last two to three years, constantly, because of one scandal or another, calling people scum, whatever, you think her sons are going to melt down because somebody wrote that she tries to tease the Prime Minister by moving her legs around while he's talking. Do you think her sons are going to need, you know, counselling? Should somebody phone Beachy Coakley, maybe, Dr Phil, for her sons? Young girl, and I worry about her seeing this environment. Oh, um, we fuck all off. have to change it. No, we don't have to change anything. What else could the Mail on Sunday do but print that story? If a Conservative MP said, we've, we've noticed Angela is very flirtatious, he had to print it. The story sold itself. Anyway, it's garbage, right? But look, I told you, I'm a one-man band here. I need to, you know, I need to have my moment where I'm not talking about COVID or Ukraine. I need to have it. If I don't get it, well, it's toodaloo. <laughs> it's ta no, it isn't. Musk, then, and the Twitter acquisition. Some cretins or cretins actually believe the Twitter will now become a shining example of free speech and the banning will stop and accounts will be restored. Sure they will, of course. Because, well, Elon, it's a ridiculous name, Elon is a great defender of and, in fact, a crusader for free speech absolutism. What a load of bollocks. But didn't stop Fox News presenter Tucker Carlson while getting all excited yesterday. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. A good news show. Don't get those too often. It's April 25th, 2022. Elon Musk bought Twitter today. That means that Twitter henceforth will be privately held. Elon Musk will determine what is allowed on the platform. Now, why is this significant? Not because it singles the sudden arrival of oligarchy, as you're hearing now. It's too late for that. Oligarchy's already here. Every major tech company is already controlled by billionaires. That's been the case for a long time. So this is nothing new. The reason today's sale of Twitter is big news, the reason it could turn out to be a pivot point in our history, is that Elon Musk does not agree with the rest of the billionaires in the tech business. Unlike the leaders of Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, Elon Musk believes in free speech. He thinks everyone should be allowed to talk, including people who disagree with him. I hope that even my worst critics remain on Twitter, Musk wrote today on his new platform, because that is what free speech means. Now, that sounds like an entirely American sentiment, but in this atmosphere, that is a revolutionary posture. Of the five companies that control the flow of virtually all information that's consumed by the citizens of this country, Twitter is by far the smallest of the group. 
but it doesn't matter. One platform going rogue is enough to break the monopoly. That means you now have real options for expressing yourself. Going forward, if you disagree with the administration's latest directive, you get to say so out loud to an audience. So they're up there every day from the podium, the biggest megaphone in the world, commanding you to hate this or that group, lecturing you about who's good and who's evil, as if you're a child and have no right to decide for yourself these things. Mm, he's getting all excited there, isn't he? It's a great day for free speech, a great day for you. He goes on, does uh, Tucker Carlson. If you had an opposing opinion, or even more dangerous than that, if you had countervailing facts that undermine their storyline, the tech companies would shut you down immediately. It happened to us. It happened to a lot of people, most of whom you've never heard of. Never hearing about those people was the whole point of shutting them down. But that's over. After today, you'll be able to post your dissent in a place where other people might have a reasonable chance of seeing it. Has somebody whacked him upside the head with a billy club? Does he really believe that from today you, you will have a genuine chance of posting things on Twitter about COVID jab fatalities and other such things and it'll be treated the same as a tweet by somebody working in the mainstream media. In other words, it won't be subject to algorithms or algorithmic fuckery designed to limit the reach of the post. Does he really believe that, Tucker Carlson? I'm struggling with this, to be honest. In other words, you will have a chance to change other people's minds, just like the White House does every day. So you just became a little more powerful. The people already in charge just became a little less powerful. What? Give over. Give over. What do you reckon, Reese? You daft prick. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Never going to happen. But anyway... They've been full of it today. Donald Trump will return to Twitter. Apparently Trump said he wouldn't. Accounts that had been deleted previously for no other reason than somebody had expressed an opinion, for example, about vaccines, as was the case with the Richie Allen Show Twitter account. Now, I don't give a shite. I don't miss the Twitter account. I wasn't proud of it when I owned it. I didn't care that it had a lot of followers. It made no interest. It was of no interest to me. I don't want it back. I wouldn't take it back, to be honest. But people believe it. And that's very strange. I think when these things happen, you really do get to separate out. In the independent media, you get to separate out what we call mainstream light and genuine independent media. It's the mainstream light that pushes this bullshit that Elon Musk is going to be good for free speech. And it's the genuine independent media content creators who know better. And will tell you, it's garbage. Okay, William Hague then, he would change Twitter and social media. Who the hell is William Hague? Who the hell is PFC William T. Santiago? Well, he, he can't run up a hill without being out of breath, apparently. William Hague would change Twitter. Um, he's a former Tory leader and one-time foreign secretary. He speaks, or he spoke this morning to Times Radio. And this is what he said. 
Social media is a disaster for democracy. Oh. And uh, we would have been much better off if the whole lot could be shut down. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, I know that it brings many, there are many benefits to it, but it could be organized in a different way if it can't be shut down. At the moment, the uninformed, ignorant, instant opinion is ranked equally alongside a considered opinion mm. or debated opinion mm. um and that's deeply unhealthy for democracy they'll be no, deeply unhealthy for democracy <laughs> it's terrible says william hague that people can say things that we don't agree with rather than just admit that and say it using the appropriate sentences and words he says, the uninformed, uneducated, ignorant opinion. No, 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 no. Tell the truth, dickhead. It's that which you would rather people didn't know. That's what it is. Not uninformed and ignorant. Because I can tell you, dear listener, if, um, and I, I believe this to be true, in my heart of hearts, you're going to call me naive now. And fair enough, have at it. You've called me worse. But I believe if the jabs they are offering people for COVID, if those jabs were safe, if those jabs had very, very, very mild side effects and really were a wonderful breakthrough in the fight against viruses, they would never, ever ban people or find them or try to delete them, their online presence, uh, for saying the jabs are dangerous. If there was nothing wrong with the jabs, they'd never delete anybody. I believe that in my heart of hearts. They would just say, well, this is very sad. But what can you do? There are some people you just can't persuade. Anyway, the jabs are good. Go and get your jab. They wouldn't have undertaken such a campaign of banning people as they did. Do you remember one of the very few things I got right? Because I don't get very many things right, and I'm not being modest here, I don't. I, I make predictions and they're terrible. You don't want to take my prediction to the bookie. The bookie will just laugh at you. Where'd you get that from, Richie Allen? <laughs> Fuck off. He knows nothing. But you, you will remember, at the, in the summer of 2020, when they said they would have a, the jabs by Christmas. Remember what I said? I think I was the only, well, the first person to say it and, and people picked up on it. I said, um, wait till you see the banning that happens in the run-up to the release of the jabs. But not after the release of the jabs, but in the run-up, in the lead-in to the rollout. They're going to go a-banning. And my God, did they go a-banning. There was nothing wrong with the jabs. They wouldn't have banned anybody. That's just my opinion. It could be argued. It could be argued that it's 19 minutes past five. But of course, that's bollocks if you're listening to this live in Australia. Or if you're listening to it in Canada. Anywho, he wants to decide, William Hague, what else does he want to decide? Even more of that if Donald Trump is back on uh, Twitter in the light of this. And I would like to see very radical global regulation. This is very hard to do of social media. Uh, where you have, you can see the original source of any information, including if it came from Russia. For oh, he laughs when he says that, including if it came from Russia. Okay, enough of William Hague. Uh, James O'Brien, Jimmy O'Brien, a cross between Lord Ho-Ho 
and David Brent. Lord Ho-Ho because James O'Brien is a Nazi. He's a propagandist for Nazi ideologies. O'Brien couldn't get enough of locking people down, of telling them they couldn't work, of uh, putting masks on children's faces, of jabbing children. O'Brien is a wretched, disgusting fucking Nazi. And I despise him. I despise him to the bone. And not hate, because I don't hate anybody, but I despise him. And he was very interested in the acquisition of Twitter by none other than Elon Musk too. Here's O'Brien, virtue signalling. The first thing I would say this morning in answer to the question of whether this is a good, bad or indifferent story um, is that an awful lot of racists are very, very happy. Uh, An awful lot of people who had apparently been banned from Twitter for um, telling lies and uh, launching attacks, vicious attacks upon people, they're, they're celebrating this morning, which makes me wonder whether I should know a little bit more about Elon Musk than I do already, or whether or not, of course, you know, a bunch of excitable racists who've got nothing better to do than pass the cap around asking fellow racists to put money into it are just grabbing this opportunity to grift a few more quid while they can. So Imagine the biggest grifter in commercial radio calling others grifters. You just heard it. And some of them, of course, have got, you know, all sorts of legal bills and and bankruptcy orders to deal with, so you can hardly blame them. Right, so the racists are delighted, apparently, that Elon Musk has taken over Twitter. Because if you were banned from Twitter, according to Jimmy O'Brien, the worst radio presenter in the world, you must be racist. Why else would you be banned from Twitter? You couldn't have been banned for anything other than racism. What a dickhead. There is here uh, an announcement from him. Free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy and Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated. Now, James O'Brien takes issue with this. He takes umbrage. He thinks it's funny that Musk has has described Twitter as basically the virtual town square. It's the place now where people come to say what it is they want to say. Now, I believe that to be true, even though I don't agree with very much else that Elon Musk has said. But James O'Brien takes issue with it. Okay, I'm going to read that again. Free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy, and Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated. I mean, come on, really? I love it. James O'Brien loves Twitter. And, And I'm on there quite a lot. And and, and, and I think, can I allow myself to say I'm quite good at it? He's very good at it. He's good at Twitter. I mean, you know, I I generally count my my sort of likes and tweets in the thousands or the tens of thousands. He counts his likes and retweets in the tens of thousands, which means he must be good at Twitter, James O'Brien, good. I'm not boasting. I'm just counting. You are, James, you are. But I would not describe it as vital to the... A bedrock of a functioning democracy. Well, you're too stupid, James. You, you, you position yourself as an intellectual. You wrote a book about not being wrong, which was utter garbage. I gave it a chance. I read a chapter or two out of it. Nonsense. And see yourself as an intellectual when in reality you're a mythomaniac. You're not an intellectual because if you were, you would be able to see exactly why social media companies were set up. To become the only place in the world, not just online, where people come to discuss their ideas 
and their theories. If you had a brain cell inside your head, you would see that this is a form of kettling of the entire global population. This is why social media companies were set up. This is why competition laws were ripped up to tiny thousands of pieces and two or three or four companies were allowed to take ownership of that space where people come to debate. But you, Jimmy O'Brien, are as thick as pig shit. Useless. You went to the London School of Economics. You couldn't have a brain cell. It's exactly what's happened. Musk is right, even though he's wrong most of the rest of the time. They kettled the global population who have any interest in discussing any of these issues and got them all into the same small, tiny cyberspace. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. That's what they did. So that they could de- then, even, um, control what those people saw, when they saw it, and who they saw it from. But you're too thick to know that, James O'Brien. Because you're counting your likes and your follows. Because you're a narcissistic little prick. See, unless, and this is where things perhaps get... A narcissistic little prick. But a little worrying. Unless... I had a thought about about a couple of months ago. I think Musk was already a big shareholder in Twitter, but I didn't know. And I, I just noted, as I occasionally do, how furious the kind of Tufton Street stroke Murdoch cabal get. Now, for no good reason that I can discern, he segues into talking about how Murdoch, as in Rupert, and his ilk, Hate him, James O'Brien. He's speaking about himself. This is megalomania and mythomania and David Brent on steroids. I mean, this is unbelievable. He's now going to talk about how they hate him because he has a million listeners listeners a week. He doesn't. That's a lie, by the way. James O'Brien is no stranger to lies. Doesn't have a million listeners a week. And, um, and, and he's a best-selling novelist. When somebody who calls them out for what they are... He's talking about himself. Has a massive following on Twitter. I I mean, they get annoyed enough about a radio show having well over a million listeners or, (laughs) or, you know, uh, uh, best-selling books and stuff like that in the normal sphere of things. But people who have essentially sold their souls to... Um, uh, well, to the interests of, of billionaires, secretive billionaires. James O'Brien wouldn't have seen the inside of a radio station 25 years ago. I know this. I produced the best radio presenters in the world. Wouldn't have gotten near a hospital fucking radio station. He is so acutely narcissistic. And yet he is beloved by the climate doom mongers. And he's, be- he's beloved by the gender peddlers. They love him because he virtue signals to them for three hours, five mornings a week and tells them that they're right. Jesus, it's 27 minutes past the hour. This is the Richie Allen Show. It's live from Salford. I'll be joined shortly by none other than John Waters. And I'm looking forward to that. Irish journalist, broadcaster and author. Taking us there, Aretha Franklin. Yeah, that version of Think is from the Blues Brothers soundtrack. Great film, that. Very funny. John Belushi, of course, Carrie Fisher, Dan Aykroyd. Love that movie. Film, we should call it. It's exactly half past five. This is the Richie Allen Show, live from BBG Towers in Salford. John Waters is a terrific writer, broadcaster and author. And it's a pleasure to welcome him back to this programme. 
lot of interest as always in in John coming on. John, welcome back. Thank you very much, Richie. Now, good evening. Good evening. Before we talk about serious matters, maybe you're going to you're going to puck me now for saying this, but what's this about you picking up a bus pass today? <laughs> yeah, uh, I I was down in my local social welfare office, a place I haven't very much frequented in the past, but I, I had to. Yeah, I've I've. I am now a, a, an elderly person officially, and uh, 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 so I'm entitled to a free bus pass. And uh, I, I always fancied the idea, Richie, of being able to travel from Dublin to Belfast on the train, get out, have a B and B or a little hotel book somewhere around, you know, myself and my wife around this, within walking distance of the station, and just get off the train, having got free travel from, you know, my my yeah. from my in, in return from my service to the state here in the Republic of Ireland for the last whatever number of years and then and walk up and and so it's, it's a kind of a fantasy of mine so I'm now on the point of being able to realize that I've, I've passed the the critical juncture in life where I'm entitled to have that and and I filled out the form it took it was a fairly <laughs> nightmarish experience like there was like 20 people queuing when I came there were only two guys at hatches or little rooms and uh, they seem to be into, you know, taking turns to take breaks. So when one would be <laughs> open, the other wouldn't, you know, and, and, and people were going crazy. Well, a couple of people were and rightly, uh, but most people, as, as is commonplace now among Irish people, just sat there. Indeed, I sat there because I didn't want to end up on Twitter. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but there was one woman, very brave woman who actually did stand up and said, what the hell is going on? And, and, uh, didn't get very many satisfactory answers and blah blah and there's some talk. But anyway, I got out in about two hours, which I suppose it could be worse. Fantastic, brilliant. I love it, Jerry. Remember, relatives of mine, senior relatives of mine. You're not senior, senior, but when uh, when they picked up their passes, they were delighted jumping on Erin Road, Erin, and travelling to Cork and to Galway and and places yeah. like that because it's not cheap. Of course, it isn't cheap. Travelling by rail is not cheap in Ireland right. more than it is here. And you know as well, in addition, you can also, uh, there's an additional pass you can get if you can send away to the UK for it, and you get a bus pass that will take you all over the north of Ireland, uh, you know, at a, when you want to go. So uh, that's another thing to look forward to. I used to have one years ago when I worked in CIE, I used to have a, a certain number of free passes every year, you know, which is quite a boot. And you could go on the boat on that at that time as well, over once, I think it was twice a year, you could go to Hollyhead on the boat for nothing. Uh, for a few drinks. So, it's like all time, Richie. Time, everything comes in a circle. You know? That's nice. It's, it made me grin when, when I saw that today. Before we talk about the refugee crisis, I, I've got to obviously ask you, for, for listeners who don't know this, it's very important. John Waters is on the line to us. And John and Gemma O'Doherty launched a historic, like a truly, I'm not overselling this, historic uh, challenge to the constitutionality of lockdowns. And initially they were knocked back and they weren't given leave to appeal. And then eventually they were told by a judge that they could appeal. Is there any, I don't think there is, but is there any news at all on that? There isn't, there isn't, Richie. And that's a surprise to me because we were told by the Chief Justice uh, on the 15th of March that the, the judgment would come within three weeks or in about three weeks, I think even. Now it's six weeks tomorrow. And that's odd. Uh, now, inter- Easter has intervened. They may have just missed Easter, but I- I'm still somewhat puzzled by it. And, you know, I could analyse it. I'm not sure if I should because I don't want to tempt fate. But yeah. uh, it does seem to me that it's not necessarily a good sign, uh, you know, because this, is a, this ought to be a very simple decision. You know, uh, the dozens of, of uh, judicial review applications go through every month uh, on the nod. 
it's just a stamping exercise. Uh, they just look at your papers cursorily and and the, the judge just says, yeah, OK, or else, look, this case, there's nothing in it. There's, it's nonsense or whatever. Ours was definitely not nonsense. It definitely didn't have nothing in it. The Supreme Court has already acknowledged that. Uh, but I don't know, you know, we're, you're dealing with very, very mystical forces here, uh, yeah. Richie, you know, and, and we have to be mindful of that. And that's something I think that we'll be returning to as the team in a later part of our discussion. I think we will. John Waters is our guest. Um, do you know what? I'll be devil's advocate just very briefly. I'm not yeah. sure it's the worst thing in the world they've taken their time over. It might be in your favour that, you know, that might go well, yeah, the other yes, way. Richie. See, I, I understand, Richie. You know, and you, but you could really t- tie your two ears in a knot uh, thinking about this. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, it, it's just one of those things. Because you can come up with arguments for either side. Well, it's a good thing because A, or it's a bad thing because Z, you know. And... and uh, uh, I, but I suppose <laughs> part of what I'm doing, Richie, is to kind of be a little bit kind of uh, pessimistic so yeah. that I won't be too disappointed. Yeah. You know that trick you know, <laughs> that I we get, play on ourselves. I get you. But, uh, you know, what, whatever comes of it was truly historic and, and proper. And it should have well, had yes. the support of the Irish media. Of course, it should yes. have had. But it didn't. Yes, it did. That's very important, Richie. That, that, that you know... You know, it's quite an extraordinary thing, Richie. I think I'm, I, you know, if I've said these things to people before, so I may have said them to you, but there, there are something like 20,000 registered solicitors in Ireland, and there's 2,000 registered barristers with the law, the, the, the law council or the bar council. And none of those people took it upon themselves, nor did any civil liberties organization to take an action in defense of the freedoms and rights of the Irish people in, in April 2020. So we rather reluctantly, I have to say, certainly on my part, and I, can't, I don't speak for Jim on this one, but I, I, I didn't want to do it. Uh, but I felt compelled to do it. Somebody had to do it because we needed to actually go to the court and actually say, look, is this permitted? Can you do this? And so, yes, it's important. Now, all things can happen. All kinds of things have happened. And when this is all over, Richie, we perhaps have another discussion and yeah. I'll be able to then go into a lot of the stuff that's underlying all this thing, because we live in very ominous times, as again, we'll be returning to in a short time uh, to discuss. But we live in very ominous times, and we live in times when it seems that, uh, you know, dark forces are trying to chip away at our most fundamental rights and steal them, and basically to bend the documents and the, the conventions which guarantee these rights. And and that's what we wanted to do. I find that extraordinarily scary, you know. Yeah. People really don't understand, it seems to me, how how freedom is done. You know, people think freedom is like air or water or something. You know, you look at you jump, you know, you go to the sea and you jump off the pier or something and you, it's, the sea is there. You know, it's going to be there. So and, and the same kind of assumption is, is made about freedom. But and people don't understand well, what's the big deal about the Constitution. A lot of young people say this to me. I don't I'm not really interested in the Constitution. I say things like I say to them, well, Okay, have you ever been to a to to a to a Coldplay concert? Oh yeah, yeah, I have actually. Yeah, okay, yeah. And and I said, do you believe in electricity? Because that electricity Coldplay concert would not be a Coldplay Coldplay concert without electricity. Now, your freedom is the same thing, and the constitution that guarantees it is the wiring that delivers it. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand how you are able to stand here talking to me this minute. Yeah, and and probably no understanding of the men and women over centuries who fought for the rights mm. that 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 they earned. That's important. We might we might come back to that. Um, mm. 
this chat we're going to have now is is it's a it's a real st- strange one for me. I, re- I remember working at WLRFM in Waterford, and I remember in 1999, 2000, 1998, 1999, 2000, there was a big influx of refugees from Africa into Ireland. And a lot of um, young men and women, a lot of young men ended up in Tremor, which is, obviously you know, John, is mm. um, you know a very well-known seaside resort town in Waterford. And at the time, Tremor men and women were trying to get on the radio to talk about the impact this influx of people was having on them. And I'm not proud of this, but I, I, I'll, always, I'll, I'll always tell the truth and be damned. Hmm. I did as much as anybody else to paint those people who would come on the radio. I I, I would accuse them of othering um, the refugees and I would accuse them of, you know, nimbyism or, um, you know, not yes. in my backyard and all that. And, and maybe I didn't know a bit better and I don't do that now and I've learned. But I now know that a lot of those people, they didn't have a racist bone in their body. They were concerned about the impacts for, for them for the education of their children for access to housing and all of that. Now, the reason I'm doing that silly preamble is because the Irish government has basically said as many refugees from Ukraine can come into the country as as would like to come in. 25,000 and a half, 25 and a half thousand have already uh, come in to to the country uh, to date compared to about 1,200 in the UK, which is an amazing thing. And, and, And this has a huge impact on people and on the lives of people. But yet this is a discussion you said to me quite rightly in an email today that people might feel they want to have, but they've been programmed somehow in recent years and decades not to have this discussion for fear of the consequences of being labelled as a racist or yes. a xenophobe. And it's hugely important because Ireland has 60,000 families already who are waiting for a house that they can afford to rent. Um, it has huge waiting lists in hospitals that even predated uh, COVID. There is a shortage of, you know, semi-skilled jobs for people. This is not going to be good for Ireland, but it's a discussion that you just can't have unless you're on a bloody programme like this. Over to you. Well, that that's right, Richie. And it's a very, very delicate subject for reasons that shouldn't be there, really, but because they have been created. There's all kinds of landmines which have been set around the whole thing. Uh, by journalists, by politicians, by all kinds of you know NGO fact- factions and all of this kind of thing, you know, uh, anti-racist groups, so-called self-styled, all that, and 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 of course, ultimately, you know, this uh, uh, enterprise of of of, of uh, uh, land mining is paid for, is sponsored by very dark forces who are not obviously not visible in the thing, not very rarely talked about, very rarely mentioned. So what's going on here is is quite different than what appears to be going on. And and there are different things that you need to sort out uh, in, in your mind. Uh, you know, that this is not what in what's going on now in Ireland for what's been going on indeed for a good few years, maybe for 20 years, gradually over since the beginning of the millennium. There's been a really uh, escalating kind of influx of people which is not in any sense naturalistic, which is not spontaneous, it's engineered. And it is a deliberate attempt to change the demography of Ireland by forces which, you know, are in behind the scenes, but which are being supported now by our so-called public representatives. That's the, the fundamental thing that needs to be said about this. Uh, now, you know, I'm not going to go into a thing of, you know, say I'm not a racist. I, I, the people who call people racist, Richie, by and large, in the present moment, 
are people who do so disingenuously and because they're being paid to do it. Yeah. You know, uh, I can understand the concept of, you know, I, I mean, I have always said, Richie, that, you know, there's a world of difference between seeing a person with a black face on the street and being unpleasant to them in any way, which I would never, ever do. Far from it. And having a philosophical view or a political view about what your country can bear and what your country should be called upon to do and what your people should be should be should be confronted by in their own country, their home, their sacred home, Richie, and the sacred home of their children, which they felt and which I felt that I could bequeath my daughter as a safe place to bring up her children when they arrive. Now, that is a severe risk if it isn't already gone. I have to say that. And I, I, I'm not going to be, I'm going to try not to be too pessimistic, Richie, because we only, we are only seeing the tip of the iceberg here. And we don't know what's behind this, how much is going on, gone on and how much is irreclaimable. But, you know, there's a world of difference between spontaneous migration for economic reasons, whereby people come looking for work. And if the country has capacity to employ them, then the policy has been in the past that they would be admitted, you know, under certain headings and so on and so on. That's all gone by the wayside now in, the, in a general sense. And we could come back to this in a, in a, in a brief period. But I mean, there's, it's very hard to read the statistics, Richie, but I, there are many complex kind of interpretations of them. But I have figures for, say, the period 2014 to 2019, which are uh, done on the basis of the Frontier Services migration estimates, which suggest to me something like the following. You see, we have mass, we have mass immigration as well. We have mass migration out of Ireland because for economic reasons. It's historically, it's hardwired into the Irish psyche. So this is the bizarre thing, which I think makes Ireland kind of unique, certainly in Europe that as people are coming in in large numbers, people are leaving in large numbers as well. And in the period, according to these figures, as far as I can work out from them, and they're written ambiguously so as to confuse you and throw you, but I, this is the picture I've rinsed it down to. Between 2014 and 2019, uh, on, average, on an average, uh, 106,000 Irish people left and 120,000 outsiders came in. Now, depending how you want to see that, it has different meanings. You could say, well, the difference between those is 14,000. That's net inward migration. But actually, now, and, and you have to allow for some variation or variable here on the basis that some Irish people may return as well, but there's very unclear stats about that. So on, in general, you're looking there that actually the Irish quotient of the population per year has altered to the tune of something approaching 200,000 minus, minus 200,000. In other words, there are, the proportion of Irish people is diminishing all, uh, all the time. And, 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 and the, the, the figure that I would say that you would rinse that down to over that five-year period, and again, I, you know, there's so many variables, it's hard to calculate, and the figures are not being very helpful. But nevertheless, I would say it is somewhere between a net change, a net replacement, if you like, of something to the tune of between 1 million and 1.5 million. Over that years. period of seven, eight yes. years, six five years, years, five years. Five years well, yeah, me. sorry, yeah, 14 to 19. That's what would that be? Uh, yeah, that's five, six years, yeah. Let's say, yeah, six years. Six years. 
So that's that's on the face of it. These figures, Frontier Services Migration Estimates, which are published by the Central Statistics Office, but they're published in, a, in as I say, in a murky way. And they, of course, rinse it down to say, well, you know, that there's 40,000 uh, or something like that net migration. But that's a meaningless figure when you consider the kinds of movements that are at play here, you know. Uh, so uh, that's the general picture, right? Now you can, and that, the second thing I say about this is that 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 much more than the figures that the CSO, the headline figures the CSO publishes, kind of tallies with what you would gather looking at any street of any city or indeed any larger town of Ireland. Now. I was going to ask you that. I was going to say to you, those figures are horrific. And I don't, that sounds like editorial. I don't mean to editorialise. They do sound astronomical to me. Yeah. So my next question was, so if you're in um, uh, O'Connell Street or if you're in Patrick Street or Michael Street in Waterford, you're going to see that now in 2022. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. and hear it. And hear it, Richie, in the accents and the, the languages. You know, I, I've done it a few times myself, not recently, but like two or three years ago, just going from a place like the Four Courts to, to Tara Street Station, you know, and listening out for the variation of accents and looking and counting. I'm telling 10 to 15 percent Irish accents is what you would hear on an average stroll across any part of the city in that way, in my direct experience. Uh, and and that's in Henry Street and in O'Connell Street and Grafton Street. You know, Grafton Street is somewhat different. There'll be more Irish there for kind of all kinds of cultural reasons. But in general, and particularly on the north side of the centre city, you get that. Uh, so you see, and then you see, this is a company. Okay, you look, you know, if, if we could have a discussion about this, it would make it awful, an awful lot easier. To understand it, it. yeah. Yes, understand, and also to, to live it in a way, because then we would say, well, look, we did put up a fight, but people are not even being permitted to fight for their own country anymore. They're being tarred and feathered and silenced and banished from whatever it is they're done, if they're doing, if they can be. It's a grave risk to take now, certainly if you have a public service job or something like that, yeah. to be known, to be have a view on this, an adverse view, or a critical view, or even a questioning view. And uh, if you were a journalist, I mean, I was, for all, not for this particular reason, but for other related reasons, I had to leave journalism uh, seven or eight years ago, seven years ago. So th this is common. And, and uh, we're here now that, you see, people talk about racism, you know. But this is the way you generate racism, I promise you. Because what's actually happening is that people's, resist, people's concerns and, 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 and fears about this are being suppressed. Well and one day they will blow, they will erupt. Yeah. When it will be too late to do anything about it. And you will have open uh, uh, racial wars. Do you know, can I, can I interject there? About three years ago, we were looking around Salford, where we, where we eventually bought our house, where, where I'm speaking to you from now. And this particular afternoon that we were looking around, um, the former um, English Defence League guy, Tommy Robinson, was in, was in town, was in Salford, and had gathered a semi-kind of a large crowd to go and see him. And there were some lads building across the road from where we live, and they were singing this song about Tommy Robinson, um, a positive song about this guy. Now, I've not spent any time in the independent, I've not spent too much time, you know, throwing around accusations of racism. When I look at guys like Robinson and why people follow him, 
I believe you were right. I believe that when the political class, and it even goes down to local politics, even down to councillors, when they ignore people, when they ignore people who... You know, I come from a working class housing estate called Ballybeg in Waterford. My family all, all worked in factories, proud of it. That's who we were. But when you're not listened to and you're ignored and they don't even canvass in your area, well, who else are you going to turn to then if it isn't the far right? Well, you see, but for, well, on that one, first of all, like, like they keep talking about the far right, but the far right, Richie, in Ireland is a complete fabrication and an invention exist. of the political of the political class, the media, and, yeah. and indeed the, the, the commissioner of Angarda Shikona, the police force, who constantly talks about and constantly talks about all the extremists they're going to arrest and all the rest of it, and they never arrest anybody. Why? Because they there is nobody exist. to arrest. Right. So on that, it's then hang on, hang on. This is important because here. We have had the BNP, we have mm. had Britain's first. And look, I, I hate to do this because I, I, I always make the platform available. I've brought some of these people on in the past. I interviewed Jada Franson some years ago. But I, I find some of them to be genuinely, um, not, not all of them, but some of them to be genuinely racist. And, I should, mm. and, and, and do you know what? Some of them are not, but they, they take advantage of this situation, you know, to draw followers. And in some case, cases to kind of make money out of it. And I regret yeah. this because I, I agree with people like, um, first of all, you're, you're, you're an intellectual, you're a journalist and an author. And, and what you're saying is 100% right. And you know, socialists used to worry about these things, like old socialists used to warn about, you know, about mass immigration and what it would do um, to people, what it would do to working communities. I agree with all of this. And... I keep coming back to this, and I've often said it on this program. The no, let me let me stay with this far right thing. So, so the BNP then, and the likes of Tommy Robinson, that doesn't really exist in Ireland. Then you're saying, no, it doesn't uh, right. at all, at all, Richie, not at all. Uh, there are there are groups like say, the National Party and, and and Irish Freedom Party who are accused of being such, but in actual fact, they're mainstream, you know, right of centre parties, really with a range of views on all kinds of issues. And one of them is that they're opposed to uncontrolled immigration. Now, I don't think there's anything radically wrong with saying, because I mean, the first duty of any government is to protect the nation's borders. Yes. And, and to say, therefore, that it is racist to actually say that they should do that is absolutely preposterous at the very least. Yeah. You see? So now, and I, 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 I'm not in the business of, you know, sort of putting up my defence and my, my, my shield anyway to these charges because they're spurious. And I can go into in a few minutes how, how I, where they come from and all this and how spurious they actually are, particularly in the context of Ireland, how spurious they are. But I just want to say, you know, I've been to, for example, Africa several times, many times. I've been to Zambia, I've been to Kenya, I've been to Malawi. Uh, I've been to Uganda, you know, I've, I've made documentaries like in Kenya, in, in, in Zambia. I've been involved with development organizations in Malawi uh, and, and collected money for them to help those people to, to, to you know, uh, dig wells and grow vegetables and, and create fish tanks for themselves. Like, so... You see, this is the, the you get this snide stuff from journalists. I got this from the RTE, where they sent me a letter there a couple of years ago, saying they were going to do a, a, a documentary or something, and they were just about my political views and so on. And I could see in the in the in the subtext of it all what they were getting at and what they were trying to suggest. 
And I said, okay. I wrote back to them and I said, okay, well, just a, just a word of advice, you know. If you're going to do that, you're going to have a lot of work to do in reading the thousands of articles I've written, in reading the 10 books I've written, in looking at all the documentaries I've made, and in looking at my record involved of involvement in Africa and other places, in South America, and so on and so on. That's not something you can square. And what happened? They just didn't do anything. They didn't do it. But what yeah. you get then, what you get then is this kind of snide in your windows all the time. Never quoting a single word, line I say. And never, and never featuring you on a live program where you can have a proper oh, discussion no. about the. And that's something we lamented the very first time we spoke. So, can I throw something into the mix here? It is my contention that Paul Golding of Britain's Forest and Tommy Robinson in particular, those are controlled opposition goons that are created, caricatures to try and destroy intellectuals who try who who endeavor to create a conversation around this in an intellectual way that's what yeah. i see happening all I, the time I, I think that's well possible i i can't yeah. comment on those individuals in particular because i haven't studied closely yeah. and i'm not close i'm not intimate enough with the british situation uh, if I was involved in it in Britain, I probably would yeah. be more so. They're not but evil, these guys. So, They're not evil. I can They're certainly just say, Richie, that I believe it's possible that this is happening in Ireland. Yeah. Because there are one or two people, none of those that I've mentioned, by the way, they, you know, there are a few people that, that you kind of sometimes wonder about when they make extremist kind of statements or, you know, and you just wonder if they're actually being put up to it so that the guard, the police force will have a pretext to clamp down on the far right, that kind of thing. I think so. Yeah. I, I said there's a bit of a, an episode going on at the moment uh, like that. Uh, it's very interesting. You see, uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks now, we've been hearing that Angarda Shikona, the, the police force, has been carrying out um, kind of visitations to certain people. Uh, uh, they haven't come near me, but uh, uh, I, I know of others whom they have uh, visited and for what they call an informal conversation. Now, if they did come to me, I would simply say to them, well, you know, what law are you coming to me on the basis of? Oh, we're coming for a, for an informal conversation. Good night. Say, no, 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 you're, you're a police point. officer. Yeah. I have lots of people I can have informal conversations with or formal conversations. If you don't have any law behind you, then that's the end of it. Because you're actually, if you don't, then you are breaking the law because you were seeking to intimidate me. This is sinister. And this is around now. Some of these people who might get a visit, this is about the, the advent. This is about this horrible... Again, oxymoronic hate speech nonsense. Yes, yes. Well, they're bringing that here in here now, and and, yeah. and you know that's going to be very soon. That is basically going to be you know a, a gag on people in general, because you will be taking your freedom in your hands, literally your physical, literal freedom to to to, to leave a room uh, uh, in your hands if you speak about these things and risk you know something coming out that can be twisted or whatever and and it's remember as well Richie as as in the UK as in other places these laws tend to be constructed in such a way that the crime or the offence is entirely in the perception of the a victim. third party yeah so there's the person who is complaining about you who interprets who might not be what the victim say. yeah and whether it is hateful or not, and their word is taken. So if they are offended by it, or if indeed a third party, in other words, a witness to a conversation or something uh, between you and somebody else, happens to hear you say something to the other person which they take objection to, or say, 
they can make a complaint. Yeah. And the other party who is allegedly the injured party doesn't even have to participate. You know, so this is really, this is unprecedented, Richie. And it again comes down to what I, I, I was hinting at there when I, we talked about the, the whole mystical nature of what's happening now uh, and, and the dangers of it. Because what's going on is not what seems to be going on in all kinds of areas. I'll just say, it's a, like, you know, I've been a journalist for, uh, for 40 years and, you know, you you know the way journalism works and we know on media and then the print and then the, the, the broadcast media. And you have what you call pundits. And whenever there's a situation developing, you get a discussion that's going on. And I've noticed of I've noticed two things. One, looking at these discussions, mainly on the Internet, I have to say, recently, in relation to the Ukraine war. And then in myself, because I listen to these very, very learned and very able pundits. I'm not slagging them in any way. These are very knowledgeable people and they're analysing the war and different aspects of it in ways that, you know, informs me greatly about lots of aspects. But all the time I have this disquieting sense about it that actually what's really going on is deeper down and they're not touching it, either because they're they're scared of entering into the, the territory which is daubed by journalists as conspiracy theory or because perhaps they don't believe that such things as seem to be happening could be happening. Yeah. Now, by what that I mean is that, that what's going on out of the Ukraine, we started talking about the Ukraine thing, and what you have to decide, I mean, this is more and more, and I, I, I vacillate on this, and I analyse it, and I go into the motivations of each person. I watch Putin and Newland and, and uh, Blinken and all these characters, Biden, saying, what is he trying to do? What is she trying to do here? And the feeling I have, Richie, about all this is that this is a setup, that it's a kind of a psyop that has been run with one objective only, and that is to bring the world into World War Three. That that this is a deliberately engineered thing and that the point of it is not just the war. It is all of the things that would, can be drawn out of the war. Now, you let me just explain something. You see, again, we, we have to touch on conspiracy theory here, so-called. And I, I use that, I, I, let me introduce that word, that phrase, because that's a CIA invention. It is. And the whole concept of conspiracy theory is an inversion of the actual meaning of the word, as it is used in common journalistic language now. Because conspiracy theory is basically the foundation of any good journalism. Yes, absolutely. In other words, you have a theory that some conspiracy is going on, you investigate it and you find That's what journalism fundamentally is, right? Good journalism, investigative absolutely. journalism. But what the CIA did, very ingeniously, has to be said, is they flipped the sinister elements from the word conspiracy to the word theory. So now it is the theorist who is regarded as the sinister figure. He is the conspiracist. So that he is, in other words, imagining or inventing, uh, vexatiously inventing the idea that there is a conspiracy when there isn't. So that's, and this is a wonderful insurance policy against certain things. I mean, and and when you actually even look at it now, it's quite bizarre. There are two things, two phases I'll throw out as, as samples of purity. One is the Great Reset and the other is New World Order. Now, listening to the average journalist or reading the, the, the average newspaper, or just listening to the way these guys go on or on Twitter or whatever, you would think that these things were invented by, you know, conspiracists of the right. Hmm? 
But these phrases have been wrong for a very long time. A long time. The Great Reset is the title of several books written and altered and, and with the name on the cover of Klaus Schwab, the head of the World Economic Forum. For two years, he's had two books on the market on, under those headings, right? And yet journalists tell you that the Great Reset is a conspiracy theory. Yes, yes. New World Order was used first, I think it was 1990 or 91, by George H.W. Bush talking about the, the New World Order. I actually found it in an old article of mine from 2003. You know, and yet you, it's like as if it's been invented. The, these journalists have managed to persuade the world that, that this is just an invention just of nonsense, far right of lunatics. Yeah, yeah. in the last couple of years. Now, that's, that's the first thing I'll say That's a psyop in, in and of itself. That's a psyop. For it this is. stuff to be in it the public is. domain and to gaslight people by telling them that they're crazy conspiracy theorists for even talking about it, while all the time it's right there. Right there for okay. people to look at. Let me, let yeah. me tell you one. Now, okay, one of the, the lines that has come out of the Great Reset is, it comes from a video produced by the World Economic Forum some years ago, in 2016, I think. And there was all these beautiful pictures of young people and, you know, being happy and so on. And one of the slogans was about the future. It was a prediction. You'll own nothing, but you'll be happy. Yeah. You've heard that, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Right. Now, let me go back. The Irish government in the past couple of years have started mooching around the whole idea of private property and talking about perhaps delimiting Irish private property, which they will have to have a referendum to do. But talking about a referendum which would tie together two things, housing for all. In other words, and this includes, by the way, anybody who's more than four months in Ireland will get a house under this, which is an impossible thing because yeah. there's no limit to what you can, you know, expect to happen. But but that in order to do that, they will delimit private property. Okay, now that's a general kind of, you know, in the past, Richie, you know, you would have thought, ah, yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> yeah, they're going to do that. Well, last weekend, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, made a statement in relation to the Ukraine situation in which she was talking about, first of all, if you, just to fill people in, initially, you know, there was kind of talk about maybe Ireland taking 20,000 people, which, as you said, by comparison to the UK, would be astronomical, 20,000. Yeah. Very quickly, this went to 100,000. It is now that they're saying 200,000, but they're actually also saying that there will be no limit. And they're saying that they have to house these people. And then she goes on, she pauses, and then she goes on. And these people don't make errors. They don't just blurt things out, Richie. She said that she's hopeful that they won't have to force people to give up their property or to allow Ukrainians into their houses. What did she mean by that? Did she mean people who have a second property that is lying unused? Well, that's not clear. That's not clear. But Not that it but, makes any bloody difference. It doesn't matter whether well, it's unused or not. If it's I your property, that, it's your you. property. I'd say, yeah. yeah, I'd say that. I'd say, you know, uh, this idea that, you know, if somebody works hard and has a house and, and others don't work hard and they just get lucky, you know, they're entitled Absolutely. to the benefits of, of, of their luck or their labour, in my opinion. And I'm the socialist here, by the way. I'm the old socialist. 100% yeah. if you work hard enough and you have two or three homes, they belong to you and the state has no um, hold over them and certainly should not be threatening you that it's not thinking but, but, about taking them. But you see, Jesus. Richie, this is where we come back to the case that myself and Gemma are taking. Because we alone in Ireland saw this danger or saw analogous dangers to this, that if the state was able to, the government was able to do the things it was proposing to do, 
lock people in their houses, tell them you can't walk any more than two kilometers from your home, you know, turn people back on the road, tell you you can't visit your grandmother in the hospital because, you know, blah, 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 all this. You can't go to mass. So on, so on, so on. Uh, that Well, if people then accept this, because, you know, as, as, as John's assumption in the UK, one of the great figures of this whole thing in the UK. And, uh, Former Supreme Lord Court Justice, Justice yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he, he was saying, you know, that generally speaking, uh, in fact, almost universally, when tyrannies occur, it is not that power is seized. It is that it is given up, given up. by the people. And this is what's happened. This is what's happening. And that's why you have somebody like this Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, put flying this kite, this kite, you know. Is that what you think happened there? That th- this oh, might this oh, this yeah. might not happen because, next year or and, the year and, after, but she just put it out there. Yes, just now here we there. come to the yeah. media, to the another sinister element in which it because the media is controlled, there was no kickback no on that. No, there was no pushback on that whatsoever. Which sends a signal not just to the government. I mean, the government is watching that. They're expecting that because they set it up like that. But this real signal is received by the people who maybe individually in their hearts of hearts, reading that in, in the paper or hearing it somewhere, say, what? Yeah, what? what? Did you hear that? Did you hear that, Mary? Did I hear that right? You know? Yeah, it's crazy. Oh, yeah, I heard that. Yeah. Oh, crikey. What's that about? What's that about? But then you see, they go on to the six o'clock news and they think this will be all over it. And there's no mention of it. So they're thinking, God. And it's that feeling you have so often, Richie. I've talked about this very often, you know, in the last uh, 20 years in all kinds of contexts. That sometimes you actually feel this thing that so you hear things that you don't remember any prior discussion about. But it sounds now like they've all been decided. Do you not feel it? Yes, that's a brilliant way of putting it. Brilliant analogy. Yes, yeah. it's and, like she says and, and, this and you're and like, like, well, yeah. You think, God, yeah. I wonder, did I fall asleep? Yeah, did I miss that? Did I miss that? Was I in a coma? Yeah. And they've all trashed this out in the meantime. Yeah. And now it's all decided that, ah, uh, no, people don't have private That's a brilliant point. You're joking, I know, but you think to yourself, was I asleep the day they debated this in the Dáil, in Dáil Aaron? Hmm. And then you're like, well, no, they didn't. They didn't. She's just saying this out of the blue with certainty. Yes, but with yeah. a menace. With a menace, yeah. You see, because she's saying she's telling you that the the the, the state force, the coer- the state coercion, which belongs to the people, will be used against the people if necessary. We don't want to use force, but we will if we have to. Let me sum that up very briefly. I, I don't need to sum it up, but I've got to remind our listeners. It's uh, it's nine minutes past six. You're listening to John Waters. Do yourself a favour and log on to johnwaters.substack.com. That's where John writes these days. Buy one of his books. He is a brilliant writer. Proud of him as an Irishman. I'm not going to be the devil's advocate here today like I've done in the past. I can't be arsed doing it because there's no point in doing it. What he's telling you is 100% true. These are things that are being openly discussed by government ministers in front of an idiotic, listless and useless press who don't put their hands up and say, hang on a second, love, what was it? not to be misogynistic, what was that you just said there? Really? That you're, you're, you don't want to have to be taking people's property to house Ukrainian refugees? John Waters is right. The Irish government has said no limit to the amount of Ukrainian refugees that can come uh, to Ireland. He's also said that he's not convinced of 
the legitimacy of what's happening in Ukraine in terms of what we are being told by the main players in it, that there's something yes. deeper going on there. And he's outlined his reasons uh, for saying that. Yeah, so, yeah, just, just to... And when I saw the well, clip, I couldn't believe my ears either. Couldn't believe my ears. Can, can I just then move it in a, to a slightly different place for a moment and then come back? Because there's, there's another little thing that's come up. There's a very interesting guy on the uh, on the YouTube called Neil McCoy Ward. He, he does a lot of stuff about farming and economics and things like that. And he put up a video in the last couple of days, which is about very interesting development in the United States, or a series of developments, dozens of these developments, which is a series of fires and plane crashes involving food factories yeah, I saw this. and distribution centres and, and, and warehouses. And when he went to, he goes through the list in, in a particular video, you'll figure we'll find it, Neil McCoy Ward, they'll find it there. Now, you see, this is, goes back to what I was saying a little while ago, Richie, that we are listening to this, because, you know, I look at what's going on in Ukraine and I, my feeling is, when I see what the, the, the West people, the West, like the, 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 the Germans and the French and, and, and uh, Boris Johnson and the Americans, Biden and, and uh, Lincoln and, and Newland and, and Sullivan and these people, the, the feeling I get is either, either these guys are completely crazy or they're actually, they've turned into a kind of a squad of suicide bombers marching on their own capitals with a desire to destroy them. That they seem to be almost like as if programmed to destroy, not Russia, because Russia is prepared for this. Russia is actually handling this very well from this, whatever you're hearing in the media. Russia, they, like, they were prepared in terms of their food, uh, their self-sufficiency for food and fuel, in terms of the, the what they've done now with the demanding rubles in exchange for oil, and Europe is highly dependent on, on Russian oil and so on and gas. So they're not really, of course, they'll have a little bit of, of turbulence for, uh, for a year or so. But by and large, their ruble has bounced back to it better than its, their pre-war situation. And, but, but, but Europe and America are facing massive hyperinflation, food and fuel shortages. And then you, you throw into the mix this idea of, of all these food processing and factories and so on, um, warehouses being burned. And the possibility so of sabotage. Can I ask you? you well, now, the, the, but, but let me come to the punchline. Yeah. Uh, just, and then we, you, you, can, you can comment to me, at me then. When I'm watching these guys, and there's some really good people, there's a very good channel called Duran, which is really excellent on geopolitics, in my opinion. And they're very well. There's a guy there called uh, Alexander Mercurius who's brilliant. He's just brilliant. He knows everything, right? And but there's a limit to where he goes, right? And I'm always saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's another explanation oh, yeah. for what you're describing, and that explanation was provided, in my estimation, not not exclusively, but comprehensively, by this man who is known to you, and his name is David Ike. Go on. David Ike described the next chapter, the missing chapter in the narrative that we've been given pretty much from everywhere, which is that this is all a takedown of Western civilization, of Western econ economies, of Western money systems with a very malign intent behind it. And I, I think more and more, when you actually see that the, the, the behavior of the Irish government, I mean, these people are not, they do not look to me like people who are going to be thinking they're going to be facing an electorate for a very long time. 
David lived with me in London when we did a TV thing back in 2013. He's been talking about this for years. Yes. And, um, yeah, for me, it's Occam's Razor. I used to argue um, cats and dogs with David when I first interviewed him 12, 13 years ago when I was based in Spain, 11 years ago. And I, I did my job, like I would you know, try and poke holes and stuff. But eventually it's Occam's Razor. I can't ignore the, there's a very strong possibility that this is exactly what is happening. Because yes. I'd be an idiot if I, if I didn't. It's happening in front of my eyes. Well, well I, I, again, because we're programmed, and because I was a journalist for so long and, and didn't know about this. I, you know, David was out there and I thought David, you know, if you said David like to me was a even five years ago, was I'd say, nutter, ah, oh, yeah. come on, he's a nutcase. Yeah. It's only in the last two years that I've gone into and started listening to the man. And why was I, was I wrong? Was I wrong? We were all and wrong, though. Be, we were all wrong about David. I, I sat and yeah. watched the Terry Wogan debacle as well and afterwards thought, that guy's crazy. And even when I interviewed him for the first time, I had fellow presenters telling me, I hope you're going to give Ike a proper kicking tonight, like, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. yeah <laughs> but then yeah, I, but didn't. Said, but, I didn't. I didn't. I did my but, job. I left him speak and we had a good chat and I thought, Christ, this guy, don't mean to blaspheme, this guy is all right. And he's got some interesting points here. And then I went, Jesus. And then I started cross-referencing stuff and I thought, Wow. There's a well, lot I didn't see, know. When, I, when I'm watching someone like, you know, as I say, the wonderful Alexander Mercouris and his colleague, uh, uh, Alex Christoforo, I think they're both actually uh, Greeks or, or, or Cypriots. I'm not sure. They're brilliant guys. And I really tell people, you know, it's well worth seeing. If you want to, you know, just get a good briefing once a day on something, you know, in the morning from Alex or whatever, it's you, you get to know. Like today I've heard like from, from Alexander's thing that, the war in Ukraine is now extending into to, uh, uh, Moldova. Moldova. And, and, and that is, and I think, a pre-planned move to escalate this so that the, the NATO will be able to get involved. And, and this is what I dread to think is actually happening, that we're being led down the path. Now, I have struggled with the idea of where Putin fits into this. And there is a, a theory that Putin is in on the thing. I don't think so. I think Putin was provoked and they knew he would be provoked because he had drawn a, 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 a red line concerning his own borders. And, and what would what was involved in NATO if, if Ukraine was allowed to jo join NATO? Remember this, uh, Richie, this is a slight side fact, but there was a, there's another big hoo-ha going on about the Solomon Islands, which has done, uh, got in, entered into a, a security pact, as it's called, with China. And the Americans are kicking up, stink about it, saying this is a red line and it's a danger to their, their, their national security. Well, Solomon Islands is roughly equidistant between America and, the China, and, and, and uh, uh, China, 7,000 miles from each. Ukraine is zero miles from Russia. And Putin is not permitted to have a red line issue to protect his borders, but the Americans can talk about a red line issue 7,000 miles away. Yeah, That level of hypocrisy, you see, uh, you know, so... There's all kinds of strange, excuse me, <clears throat> strange things going on. But when I listen to these guys or any other people, lots of, there are lots of people who have lots of stuff to tell us. And I try to go around the place and try, pick up as many different viewpoints as possible. And all the time, you know, what David has been saying is in my mind, because that's the paradigm that fits most closely to what's actually unfolding. Yeah, we're back to Occam's razor. Let me jump in on that point. Um, 
I don't know either whether Putin is in on it or not. I love speaking to real journalists because you always leave room for every possibility that Putin might be in on it, or maybe he isn't. Maybe he was provoked and they knew how he would react. We know the 2014 coup in Ukraine, orchestrated by Victoria Newland um, and and uh, John Kerry and Obama. All of all of this is true. We know or, the historic. Or, or sorry, sorry, Richie, to interrupt you, but there's another possibility that Putin was in on it, yeah, and that he now he's double crossing them. Again, yes, absolutely. I I couldn't say, oh, that's that's nonsense. I leave room for every. And the point I was going to conclude with was, I leave room for all those possibilities. But what I'm certain of is that everything that is happening now is advancing the agendas, the Great Reset agenda. It's advancing it. It's it suits it down to the ground. The you know the breadbasket of Europe, the problems with food production, yeah. the problems with food, uh, the problems with you look, you look at China. I mean, somebody said to me the other day, a really bright guy. I won't mention him. I meet him sometimes in a park in Salford, and he said, Richie, you know what the Chinese are doing, and we're so we're so appalled by it, locking millions of people into their homes, even though there hasn't been a single COVID death. You know, forcing testing on people, but almost at the end of a bayonet. The Chinese, it's terrible. Guy said to me in Salford Park, in a, in a park in Salford, he said, Richie, what if that's, you know, deliberate to slow down production in China of essential things and if it's to slow down, you know, the transport of goods out of China? You have to consider everything. Richie, you do. And, and, and can I just say something very important here, Richie, which is kind of out of the conversation in a sense. What I would say to people who are listening, take, you know, regardless of what you think about this, think very carefully about the possibility that maybe it would be a good idea to prepare for the worst eventuality. The prepping, like, yeah. Yeah, the prepping end of it. The food, the fuel, those basic essentials that so that you can be warm, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, like I heard Scott Ritter talking about this, like, you know, and then he was asked a question. He's an expert on, on warfare and all that. Uh, he worked with the UN for a long time. And he was asked, like, well, you know, did he think that the electorates of the world would start to turn on their governments? And he says, yes, because, you know, whatever about now, the propaganda works now. Because people, when you're warm and, and, and you have a good dinner in your belly and, and you're comfortable, it's not. But when you come home, maybe in six months or a year's time, and you're hungry and there's no food in the, in the, in the fridge and you have no f- fuel because it's been rationed and you've run out, then you would begin to question your government. But, Richie, this is my punchline to that. What if this was what the lockdown was about? It was a training session for everybody. A dry run. A dry run for the moment when the people would begin to awaken to what was really happening, that their lives were being stolen from them, that their resources were being stolen from them, that everything they had and loved was being stolen from them. I passionately believe now that that is what is happening, Richie. And that David Icke was 100% right about everything. That is, I've watched him. I've watched hundreds of his videos. I've listened to him very carefully. He is an extraordinarily good man and an extraordinarily honest and brave man. He used to do these he, um, 12 and a half, 13 hour talks. I, I attended some of them, obviously, when I was working with him. I went to one in Holland. I went to one in Wembley. And it's just an extraordinary thing to see his thesis laid out using all the audio visual laid out over mm. you know two and a half hour stint then we'll have a half hour break back again i've never seen anything like you it know, you know you know it's very interesting there's a clip going around now from youtube about you know when he appeared on the late late show in ireland with gay Byrne in 1991 
And I remember that was one of the first things I really saw of him, you know, and I when I started to think about him and so on. And when I, I, I was kind of dreading it a little bit because I'd heard all this stuff about the lizards and all that. And yeah. Went, you know it. And I thought, this guy's going to come on. He's going to be foaming at the mouth. Yeah, yeah. And you yeah, see, yeah. watch it, it's there. Yeah, and you dream, yeah. Watch it. Yeah, yeah. David, I, late, late, 1991, Gay Byrne. He comes on and Gay Byrne asks him a question and he answers in the most reasonable way. And everything that he says makes absolute sense. Yeah. And you think, what was this all about? Who did this to David Icke? You know, I, 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 you see, so that's what I'm saying. I mean, this is, we're into now deep water here, Richie, in terms of their conspiracy theories. You know, this nonsense that's grown up people still mouth and, and put out. I mean, they're doing it to me all the time, you know, and the, there's hit jobs in the, in the newspapers and so on, so on, so on. I don't care about that. It's not important. What is important, though, is that people really give themselves an opportunity to even test the possibility that what I'm saying here, not just me, what I'm just relaying, what David Icke said, that this might be true. Because if it is true, you need to be ready you and you need to have you. your family ready and you need to make sure that they're safe when this happens. John Waters is our guest, johnwaters.substack.com. We've got John for another 15 minutes or thereabouts. That's with his permission. johnwaters.substack.com. John is a gifted Irish journalist and writer, wrote for the Irish um, broadsheet newspapers for many, many, many years, appeared on dozens if not thousands of uh, television and radio programmes, made documentaries around the world, uh, and his books are great, great reads. They are, folks. Support the independent media. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a strange and a wonderful thing for me to hear you say that you've, you know, considered things and gave, given a chance to things that you might have previously thought were, you know, unpalatable and just absolutely unimaginable. Mm. I think there's, there, there really is hope, I think. In that, well, you know, yeah. I well, you see, I learned that uh, the hard way, Richie. You know, uh, because thirty years, twenty, nearly thirty years ago, twenty five, twenty six, twenty seven years ago, I started to write out of uh, personal experience to some extent, but also anecdotal stuff about family law, and I became very embroiled in it because it, I, I was astonished by the injustice I was encountering, the injustice towards fathers and children in that context, right, and family breakdown and so on, and. I was trying to write out of it and write people's experience and I got massive pushback from, from colleagues and from lawyers and the newspapers and editors and so on. And, and uh, uh, but I persevered and, you know, I got to be known for being obsessed with this. You know, this is the thing. It's an amazing thing when, no matter, you know, even if an issue is fashionable, like LGBT or whatever, you can write about it 24 hours a day and nobody will say you're obsessed with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But if they don't like what you're saying, <laughs> then you're psychotic and obsessed, right? Yeah, That's the lunatic, deal. Yeah. Now, but here was the thing, Richie. I, I, we, I, people used to come to me after, after a while, like a long time I was there with Sean for a long, but then every, this thing started to happen where guys would come up to me in the street or fall into step beside me and walking along and say, you're John Waters, yeah? And they says, yeah, um, he says, I used to think you were a raven lunatic, but now it's happened to me. And that had a very powerful effect on me. You know, what if there are things that I am dismissing because I don't, I haven't experienced them? Yeah. Maybe I should be more open. And that's when I started, I said, I, I'm going to investigate everything. I'm going to start again. And I went into Catholicism and all that. And, you know, I, I 
and dug up lots of stuff and I started to think about it more broadly and in more in a more complex way and you know, I don't say I came to all the right conclusions. I didn't. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm revising some of those revisions now and so on, uh, which is an interesting thing. But, uh, you know, there's all kinds of stuff like that that I, I've done that with. Been wrong about a lot of stuff. But, you know, you need to be wrong in order to be right. You can, unless you're prepared to take the risk, you know, about something that you, you, you firmly believe in. And then revise it if you turn out to be wrong. It's amazingly liber- it's amazingly liberating to reach a place in your life where you're happy. Not not that you're happy, but you're completely relaxed and calm with with finding out that something you believed to be true isn't. It's a wonderful liberating mm. thing. It happened to me oh. five or six years ago. It's great. I'm it's wrong all the time. It's a very dizzying thing, though, Richie. Well, it can well. be. I mean, it is that. It is yeah. that. As the person whose job it is to tell the truth, it is. But there's another sense in which there's a, you can almost feel the world unraveling as you knew it. You know, it, it, it's like, it, is, is anything, can I put my foot down on the ground now or will it disappear from yeah, under? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're back to you questioning know? your own and existence, that, yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah. that really is sometimes I think that, that they've just told us nothing but lies. Like, I have a thing like about Irish politics that, I mean, I was immersed as a writer in Irish politics, you know, and the culture of one party Fianna Fáil and the other party Fianna Gael and the civil war divide between them and the history between them and all the the, 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 the passionate, you know, adherence that they attracted from from basically 50-50 of the population at one stage. And and I wrote a lot about it. I wrote a book 30 years ago, uh, Jiving at the Crossroad, which is all about that. And a friend, a guy I was in touch with has been reading it recently, but he read first my more my most recent book, Give Us Back the Bad Roads. Yeah, which is a and he liked read. that very much. Yeah. And then he said, I'm going to read Jiving at the Crossroads now. And I said, well, I've got to give you like a government health warning. You know, <laughs> you'll probably find it very sentimental and, and, and naive. And and because and, I, what I felt, look, God, I, I was, you know, the, these parties are now the people who have destroyed my country, you know. They're destroying my country. That Helen McEntee, she's a member of Fine Gael. You know, uh, Vradker, Michal Martin, the teacher, is a member of Fine Fall. These guys who I kind of argued for when everybody else was in a kind of a very literal, simplistic way denouncing them for minor corruptions or whatever it would be. I was saying, yeah, but there's something bigger here. There's something tribal. There's something very important in history that we need to, to link together. And now I have to revise that and say, you know, oh, I don't know, maybe that book, I wouldn't write it now. But the funny thing, the guy that I was, that, that he said, no, I'm, I'm halfway to it. And he says, it's a highly prophetic book of what's going on. And I'm going to talk about, you know, about that because I'm interested in that. I haven't read it myself for years. Well, I was just going to say that it's, um, it sounds like you need to read it again. Well, I don't know if I could bear it, Richie. And write a sequel so, to it, maybe. It, because you see, the country that I, for me, that country is gone now. It's being destroyed. Yeah. But you, you know, said to me, hang on, hang on, hang on, you said, this is brilliant, hang on, you said to me in the first conversation we had on this programme, and I thought it was exceptional, you said to me um, that you you now, you just said in a moment ago, looking back, question everything, like, you know, question your own place in the world, in Ireland, in journalism, and you were beginning to wonder, was it all... Um, one big conspiracy even back then leading on to where we are now so mm. you, you, you can't beat yourself up about what might or might not be in that book and if the guy said it's prophetic get 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 on to it that is true that is yeah. true Richard. and I, I do think that you know uh, 
I mean, I love the book in, in principle and, and because it's about my father and the more recent one is about my father as well. They're, they're in a certain sense, they're the same book, yeah. uh, you know, it, because one starts and the other continues and, and then it goes back again and so on. Uh, but uh, I suppose, you know, when you see, you know, to translate this into British politics, when you look at the figure of Boris Johnson now, and no matter where you stood on him in the past, I mean, I remember him when he was a brilliant journalist. Like if he was writing about the Ukraine war now as a journalist, if he'd never been in politics, he'd be writing brilliant stuff about it. It'd be absolutely riveting. And yet he's behaving like a complete clown, hanging around with Zelensky, who is like a criminal, a drug addict and a colluder with Nazis. And everybody knows it, including Boris Johnson. But this pretense that this is somehow about democracy and Boris Johnson, the way he destroyed British democracy for the past 24 months. Yeah. Like, how can he with a straight face talk about democracy at all? So, again, that would be if I was there now. And I know people like James Ellingpole that who, who have the same view about that. You know what I mean? That, that how like we were completely conned by these people. They completely misled us. You know, and I, I'm, I'm in shock about that in my own context, in my own country, that people that I thought of at worst to be kind of harmless gobdaws, we'll say. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. that they do you, they do you, they pull a stroke on you, but they wouldn't really do you serious harm maliciously. And now they're actually trying to destroy the very fabric of our existence. Do you consider the possibility, or you have? The last time I voted was in 2002 in the general election back home in 2002, I voted the usual suspects. For me, I voted Socialist Workers' Party and Sinn Féin and the Workers' Party because I, of course, was living under the illusion that these were genuine socialists. Mm. When, of course, none of them were. So that's what I did. I came to the conclusion, again, Occam's razor, that um, the, 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 the people who end up in the positions of power or the ones put on... Uh, on a plate for us to choose from. So here, here, here's a plate, here's some politicians choosing. I believe that there's enough evidence now that the shadowy figures who often we don't see them, they have basically compromised these people and taken ownership of them at some step along the road of their development, whether it's in university, whether it's when they're in the private sector. They drip a little bit of poison into their files. Do you know what I think is a great analogy of that? Do you remember Godfather Part Two? Mm-hmm. S- Senator Pat Geary comes to Lake, um, whatever it is, to meet um, Michael Corleone. And Michael wants something from him. And the senator laughs at him and says, I might give you what you want, but it's going to cost you this, it's going to cost you that. He sneers at him, at Michael Corleone. Mm-hmm. What they do to the senator, I believe, is an amazing analogy um, of what, they, what I believe they do, people like Jeffrey Epstein and others do. They drug the senator and they put him in bed with a prostitute who they murder. They, welcome, they wake up Senator Geary. He's like, oh Christ, I'm finished. I'm ruined. Oh my God, what did I do? And in comes Tom Hagen, the conciliary, and he says, don't worry about it, pal. We'll look after you. And I'm mindful of something that was said by a guy called Tim Fortescue. Tim Fortescue was the chief whip of the Tory party in the early 1970s when Edward Heath was the Prime Minister. He told the BBC back in 1997, Tim Fortescue, the clip is available on YouTube, he said, um, when MPs were in trouble, they would come to the whips to get him out of trouble. It might be for something like um, uh, child abuse, he said. Small boys. Yeah. 
And we would get them out of trouble, he said, because you could use that MP forevermore. I came to believe along my journey, sorry for being so long-winded, I came to believe that every one of them is somehow, uh, has the sword of Damocles hanging over their heads. Well, this is this is something I I, I, I struggle with too, uh, uh, Richie, and 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 it's these are thoughts that go through my head ten or twenty times a day. Yeah, because it's like you know your Occam's razor thing is also like it's the, the, the I think the, the the Sherlock Holmes line was something like you know when you've ruled out the impossible, then the improbable is the most likely. Yeah, cause. whatever's left. Yeah, whatever's left. Yeah, yeah. and and and. You know, when when you actually consider the possibility that these guys could voluntarily do this to their own country, and you say, no, the, the people I knew, the Michal Martin, for example, the Taoiseach of Ireland, I knew him, you know, not well, but we always run into him and hello, how are you doing and all that kind of stuff when I was a journalist. Friendly, you know, never a crossword between us, except in debates on TV, and we never held any rancor or malice towards each other. There was nothing like that. If you would ask me, like, would this a man like this do the stuff he's doing? I say it's not possible unless there's some other explanation. And now I'm not saying that that applies in his case. There may be other explanations and we won't go into those either for, you know, for obvious reasons. But people can use their imaginations. What other reasons might there be? But that's the realm that I'm, that I'm talking about here, really, that when we actually try to listen to this, what's going on. Clearly, it seems to me that what's going on in Ukraine is not an attempt to stop a war, it's an attempt to start one. John Waters is our guest. We've got about five minutes left on this today. A number of people have asked me to put this to you. It's maybe a question for another day, maybe, but you might want to touch on it for a moment. Mm. Um, do you consider that what is happening might be biblical? Uh, you know, that there, that this is apocalyptic stuff, really? Well, yes, I do in all kinds of ways. It's a complicated question because, you know, uh, on the one hand, it's, it's again, it's awkward. I mean, our culture doesn't permit us in, in to, to analyze events in that way, really. Although, you know, religious people do, and I'm relatively religious in, in certain respects, I would say. Um, and I'm interested in all that stuff very profoundly. Uh, but I, I, I would come to that through... The, the 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 profane, if you like, to the to the normative everyday events, and then you know you're left at the end. You're saying things like, "Well, this is diabolical, this is satanic." Now, am I still being, as it were, metaphorical about that? Well, yes and no. I mean, I don't rule out. I certainly don't rule out the the existence of evil, uh, because if you believe in good, then you have to believe that evil is there also. And I don't even rule out the possibility that evil may have a capital E, that we are talking about an actual entity. I don't I don't disregard that at all, because, I mean, I've seen evidence of people with possession and, and you know, messing around with Ouija boards and what happens to them and so on. These are not minor things, you know. No. So I don't rule out that. And, and certainly when I read into the history of, of what we might call the secret unknowns, I call them the combine. You know, which is a phase from Ken Casey's book, uh, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. You remember uh, Chief Brown, um, what was his name, Brandon, uh, uh, had this thing he th that he, you know, that this is the interesting thing about Casey. He put this into the mind of, 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 of uh, the chief and he, like the combine, that this was kind of this manipulative Machiavellian faction that was trying to change the world and, and control everybody. Now, of course, Ken Casey was himself involved with, with, 
the, the Grateful Dead and, and a lot of, he was very knowledge, who were very knowledgeable and who were quite involved, as I've said, in some of this stuff. So this is real stuff. You know, you only have to read a certain amount below the surface to realize that there's huge depths here. And these people you do, I do know from what when you read about it, that these people are very strongly involved in satanic rituals and so on. And God knows what else. Yeah, and and yeah. therefore, I don't in any sense dismiss it. I, that's a very convoluted answer. I mean, it should have been a yes or no answer. But it's 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 me as the person, as a journalist commentator, as a writer, as someone who has to reserve judgment sometimes in order to look at all the evidence until all the evidence is in. But I certainly don't discount that possibility. Far from it. I mean, I do think we are dealing, we can actually say that we are dealing here with pure evil. And I mean, I see that. Well, I, I would say that the Irish political establishment now is among the ugliest and most wicked in the world. We'll leave it there for today. Folks, you've been listening to John Waters. Please do me a favour and go to johnwaters.substack.com. Um, if you haven't read Give Us Back the Bad Roads, John's most recent book, I was made a present of it by Jean Anne Crowley. It's a fantastic read. There's no reason for me to say that, unless I mean it. I don't likely say I like something or I, or I love something. Uh, buy, buy one of his books, buy that book, read it. As I said, johnwaters.substack.com. And a number of people have said um, they're thrilled that John has mentioned some of the people he's mentioned, not just David, but some of the other content creators on YouTube. And they've asked me, why have I not had these people on? I produce and edit this programme by myself. I don't see a lot of YouTube, but I do write down names. And I have made note of the people John has mentioned. And I will certainly extend them an invitation to come on. Uh, the programme. It's a pleasure to speak with you, mate. I, I, I hope we'll have some news real soon from the Supreme Court back home in Ireland yes. and it'll be good for you and Gemma. And not I, just good for uh, you and Gemma, for every one of us. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking that it, it has to be next week, Richie, because this is a second. I think they have longish holidays, but can't go on forever. So yeah. I'd imagine they come back to work next week, something like that. And as soon as they come back to work, I'd nearly expect that they will actually belatedly deliver their judgment. Let's hope so. You know the door to this programme is always open. I love the conversations with you. We're keeping the long-form chat alive, you and me, on this programme. Great program. stuff, Richie. Lovely to be with you. I love to uh, talk to you anytime and uh, look forward to the next time. Thanks so much, John. John Waters, folks. Johnwaters.substack.com You've been listening to John on Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. Um, he's a great guy, isn't he? He's a proper orator. And he's a terrific writer. So check him out if you haven't. And um, I have made note, as I said, of those people. I've made note of those people. Would you like to hear some George Michael? I've just dragged some George Michael into the playout system. And when I come back, I'm going to read some of your comments. At the time, it's exactly 19, 18 and a half minutes even to the top of the air. Tuesday's show with me, your BBG live from Salford. George Michael and Heal the Pain on the Richie Allen Show. That is from Listen Without Prejudice, Volume 1, which is a very, very good record. Divided critics when it emerged, when it was released, but I like it a lot. Richard says, this might sound crazy, but we should all try and analyse our dreams, especially at this time. That is interesting to me, because I don't remember my dreams. Very, I haven't for a long time. Um, not like the oft-mentioned El Frogo Tremendo, who never shuts 
the feck up about her dreams. Do you have a missus like that, men, who constantly talks about her dreams? Dreams mean a lot to Caroline. She gets really wrapped up in them and their meanings. And sometimes she gets disturbed by them. I don't mean disturbed like, you know, men, women in white coats, straight jackets, but she gets, you know, a little bit, um, yeah, perturbed by her dreams. I don't remember mine. I don't. And I think that's somehow linked to my lifelong struggle with insomnia. I mean, last night, for example, four hours tops, I would have slept. I don't remember the dreams at all. I'm in good shape at the moment. I had a lovely week off a couple of weeks back in the Ambleside and I rested really well. So I'm not quite the zombie now that I ordinarily am. I I walk around as a zombie during the day, putting the show together. I come alive between five and seven. I wake up and I'm, I'm, you know, I think I'm reasonably sharp. And then usually afterwards I go back to zombie, pretty much. And I wonder, does that have any bearing on my not remembering my dreams, you know? Bruce says, as George Gurdjieff said, is it Gurdjieff? Uh, decency, how can you expect decency from a world of sleeping people? They can get away with almost anything. The weak link, people, in block capital letters. David says, question evolution. He believes it's a lie. Question the Big Bang. It's a lie, says David. Question the spinning ball Earth, as it's a lie, he says. All seas and water all locks, canals, etc., all find their level. I could go on for hours, but I'll shut up, he says. And then he says, love you, Richie. He says that with his tongue firmly planted in his cheek because I, it's not that I don't believe flat earth. I just don't think it matters a damn. Because I, if I had to put my last five pounds on something, I would have a, a little punt on the holographic universe theory. But again, what do I know? Patricia says, about David Icke, anyone with doubt about his knowledge should do research on his visit to Peru. Long story short, he was drawn to a hill. And as David relates it, a voice, which is a decoded electromagnetic communication, very clearly said to him, they will be talking about this moment a hundred years from now, and that experience changed his life forever, says Patricia. Uh, Hoffman Aviation says, the sword of Dolphin Square. That's what he said, or she. James says, you're bang on it, Richie, regarding Godfather Part 2. Bang on it, says James. Well, I wouldn't have been the first person out to draw that comparison. The scene where Senator Geary is set up by the Corleones and what might be going on with at least the most senior elected officials. I believe, and, and others have said this before me, that guys guys like Jeffrey Epstein, and Epstein was one of many. He wasn't working alone. Um, worked on behalf of intelligence agencies and others, darker forces, to set up people who would work in the public eye because then they could be owned forevermore. Now on that, I was um, gabbing briefly with Jean-Anne during the musical break there about China. 
Why would Xi Jinping, why would his government in China lock 25 million people into their homes when there hasn't been a single COVID death and only a handful of cases? I'd like you to think about that again because we shouldn't just toss that away. That's devastating stuff, that. Why would Xi Jinping, apologies for the butchery of the man's name, the Chinese Premier, why lock people into their homes? Basically, you know, terrorise them. Um, Tell them they have to take COVID tests, penalty of being dragged away and force tested if you resist. I'm not making this up now. Why would you do that to people for a mild respiratory illness that hasn't killed anyone in that region for over a year. Think about that. And has only resulted in a handful of cases. So we're back to Occam's razor. And John mentioned the Sherlock Holmes thing. When you rule out everything that's possible, when you rule it out, whatever's left, however unlikely, however impossible, must be considered to be true. I believe in my heart of hearts, and I can't prove it, that the same shadowy elite controls every politician on planet Earth. I disagree with my learned friends, and they are learned, and they know more about me on most issues. They've read more. They've digested more. People like Tony Gosling and, and others. I have great respect for them. That's why I say, in my opinion, it could be argued that the, sha- the same, excuse me, Shadowy figures control every single one of them. Whether it's the Israeli Prime Minister, whether it's the Lebanese Prime Minister, whether it's the Ayatollah. I know it sounds far-fetched, but they all dance to the same tune, in my opinion. That's a stretch for people and I totally understand it. That's why I say, listen, you might be right, I might be wrong. They're all controlled one way or another. Even if they're not consciously controlled, could you consider that for a moment? That they could be controlled and not even be aware of it. That they might take decisions. That's something to consider, dear listener. You might not even need to set a politician up with a small boy. You might not even need to set a politician up by compromising him or her financially or a member of their family, criminally or financially. You might not even have to do that physically, but that there are psychological means by which people could be controlled. Think of people like Barry Troer. Think of people like Nick Begich. The work they've done over the years on how people's minds can be manipulated with electromagnetic devices. So Vladimir Putin could be dancing to the tune of the Great Reset Agenda, but not realise it. That sounds incredibly far-fetched. Well, that must be bullshit, Richie. And, hey, you might be right, it could be complete bullshit, that. Absolute garbage. That might be the case. But I leave room for that possibility. That every one of them, one way or the other, is moving in the same direction. But as I said better men and better women than me would disagree with me. 
Tony Gosling made a compelling argument yesterday for Vladimir Putin's individuality, for Putin and his government, for their capacity to resist the West. He made a good argument. And I listened to it. And I processed it. And I think, yeah, but you've not entirely convinced me that they're not all doing it. Ask yourself again, why would the Chinese do it? Why? Not a single death. A fecking handful of cases. Why commit financial suicide? Because this is devastating for the Chinese economy. Not as bad as it is for Western economies. So you might say, well, there's, there's your answer then. They're doing it to destroy the West. You might be right. I don't think you are right, but you might be right. I leave room for you being right in that scenario. I don't want to be right. It's not important for me to be right. I think I might be. I think every single one of them is in on it one way or the other. Either they're on film, wired for sound, doing things they shouldn't do, in which case they're in the pockets, or so they're, they're manipulated psychologically in some other way where they don't even know. Taking decisions that they don't even know they've been manipulated into taking. That's all I do is ponder these blooming issues over and over again. During the day, listening to the shit on the radio and on the TV, wondering how are they getting away with it. I used to pray there was resistance to it. I used to pray, not to God, as we understand God through the Abrahamic religions, but I used to pray mentally to something else, that there was genuine opposition, that the Iranians, say, were genuine opposition to it, that the Chinese were the so-called axis of evil. You know, Iraq, Saddam, whether it be Bashar al-Assad, Putin, I would pray internally that these people knew what was going on and that they were our last hope for redemption. Things have happened in recent years particularly in the last two and a half years, that have led me to think, no, that way doesn't lie redemption or salvation. Those people are in on it. But then again, let's finish today on that note, that important note, that that is just my opinion. I don't know, for, for a fact. We might do a phone-in on it. Maybe next week we'll do a phone-in on that. Because I think we could get some interesting conversation going on that, on that subject. Any of them out there? Is there anyone out there? I don't believe so. But um, yeah, thanks again to John Waters. I mentioned on the programme yesterday, he says as he scratches his earlobe, I have an itchy earlobe, I don't know what that means. Um, itchy ears, that means somebody's talking about me, is it? Uh, itchy nose means I'm going to have a fight, doesn't it? That's the old the old grandmother's tales, the old wives' tales. Jenny uh, Lowe's from Portugal, obviously very vastly experienced English nurse who's living these days in Portugal, has done a lot in her career, trained nurses on behalf of the NHS. I invited her on to have a good old chinwag. In fact, we jested on Skype that we would wing the bejesus out of it. Going to have a, an open chat about things, healing, uh, not healing as such, but but uh, homeopathic medicines and stuff. Lots. We're going to get into lots and we're going to have 
a bit of an open Q&A so you can, you can ask questions of Jenny on the website while she's on richieallen.co.uk and uh, my great mate Kevin Barrett will be live on the show tomorrow from Wisconsin I never uh, miss an opportunity to talk to, 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 uh, to Kevin I love having Kevin on so there you are I said I'd read out the comments then and look look what happened but thank you for them. Just to read one or two, because I said I would. Nelly says, I saw David in Brixton. He spoke for eight hours to a massive audience. He's a truly brave man, and I believe protected by a good energy, so so that he could talk uh, such truth for all of those years. Thank you, Nelly, for that. Um, On the past two years, Chiro says, yes, I agree. The last two years has been a massive stress test. They've also gained lots of AI data, satellite data, maps and stuff about where you went to get respite, etc. Like into the countryside, away from it all. Uh, or so you thought, mentioned yesterday on the programme, seeing police drones for the first time um, around these parts lately. That won't be a surprise to you, I don't think, but, but there you are, I've noticed them. Lots and lots of comments. Thank you for them. Daza says, Richie, the next time you're on the John Waters show, you'll have to try harder to get a word in. <laughs> I like listening. I like listening. God, if it was God, gave us two ears and one mouth. There's a reason for that. At least I was taught that when I got into uh, broadcasting. Closing out the programme for no good reason, other than it was the easiest one to hand, with Johnny Cash. Thanks for listening. Look after yourselves and one another. Until tomorrow, bye.